you know, I did, it wasn't just here she was. She was born. She had these difficulties in slavery, and then she wrote a novel. You know, that's not terribly exciting. What's really exciting is the ways in which she discovered and、um, fostered her literacy, and the way she captured the stories of those enslaved people around her, and as an artist, preserved their lives through her art and fiction in an autobiographical novel. Welcome to the Habit Podcast: Conversations with Writers About Writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. In 2001, Henry Louis Gates announced the discovery of an unpublished novel called *The Bondswoman's Narrative*, written in the 1850s by an enslaved woman named Hannah Crafts. If Gates had the authorship right, it would be the oldest known novel by an African American woman. But many people doubted the book's authorship. In 2013, however, Greg Hekmovich produced evidence that the Bondswoman's narrative was indeed written by a black woman in the 1850s. Hannah Crafts, he demonstrated, was the pen name of Hannah Bonds, who escaped from slavery in North Carolina. Dr. Hekmovich's new book is *The Life and Times of Hannah Crafts: The True Story of the Bondswoman's Narrative*. It's a biography of Hannah Bonds. But it's also a detective story, telling how Greg Hekmovich and many others uncovered the fascinating true story behind Hannah Bond's fictional story. Dr. Greg Hekmovich, my old friend, I'm so glad to have you on the Habit Podcast. So great to be here, Jonathan. It's going to be a pleasure to spend this time with you. Yeah, as it always is a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> um, we should get this out of the way. You and I were housemates at Vanderbilt. Back when we were getting our、uh, degrees, and you went on to literate to to academic heights, and you know, it's it's more intimate than that because I was there、uh, when Lou Alice, your wife, appeared like an angel from the sky on our <laughs> back porch, and I I had a high opinion of you, Jonathan, before that, but that was the beginning of. A deep, deep admiration <laughs> extended through your great writing too. But Luellis is probably well, without a doubt, yeah, yeah, yeah. achievement. <laughs> I, I don't question that at all.、Um, okay, your book just now coming out is the life and times of Hannah Crafts, the true story of the Bondswoman's narrative. Now, most readers and most listeners to this podcast. Don't know who Anna Crafts is. Don't know what the Bondswoman's narrative is. Tell me about this. Talk to me about、sure. who Anna Crafts is, who the、uh, Bonds, what the Bondswoman narrative is, and why this is important. Sure. In two thousand one, an auction item came up at Swan Galleries in New York City. It came from the estate of the most famous. African American librarian Dorothy Porter Wesley, and her some of her materials that were part of her collection, parts of her collection that were not、um, later archived at various libraries, went for sale <clears throat> in 2001. Seeing this description, the famous、uh, African American literary scholar and historian Henry Louis Gates Jr. got that catalog. And he saw this description of original unpublished manuscript purporting to be written by an escaped slave. 
he was thrilled. And that's because for years after he discovered what was considered the first novel ever written by a black woman, that's the novel Our Nig by Harriet Wilson. Gates discovered that. It was published in 1859. And it was the early part of his career when he began making his career, he discovered that. And he used to talk with Porter Wesley about that discovery. And according to Dr. Gates, Wesley would joke with him that she had something far more valuable in her files that she was going to work on and he thought she was just messing with him. Um, <laughs> but what he discovered when that was published is, in fact, she, it was a constant refrain in their friendship. So he, so he, he was curious when, when he saw that and he thought, I need to get a hold of that manuscript because that really could be what she had been talking about. So he sent. I'm sorry, let me interrupt you. The, the, yeah. the item in the auction catalog said, how was it described? It was described as an original unpublished manuscript purporting to be written by an escaped slave named Hannah Crafts. Uh -huh. And it would see appeared to be autobiographical and written sometime before the Civil War. OK. Um, and so it went and this is before this is 2001. This is before sort of American history, American culture. Uh, sort of caught up with Dr. Gates and Dorothy Porter Wesley, right? So um, when he sent a colleague to bid on it, he was able to purchase it at the floor. I think it was $8,000, which is a lot of money, I mean, for scholars, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, when he got a hold of it, he was floored. He knew immediately that this was the manuscript Dorothy Porter Wesley had been talking about. So he did initial research um, on the manuscript, including notes that Dorothy Porter Wesley had typed up and it, that were included with the manuscript when it arrived at his home. Um, he approached a major publisher. They wanted to bring the book out, but they didn't want to do it until they were able to send it to two manuscript experts, Dr. Joe Nickel and um, Kenneth Rendell. These are people who do forensic analysis of yeah. manuscripts, all sorts of manuscripts. And what they concluded was this is the real deal. The ink, the, the ink, the fiber of the paper, the construction of the paper, there's a, a, um, a impress on the pages that were part of the way paper was produced at the time that dated this uh, manuscript to precisely what uh, Dorothy Porter Wesley had recorded and what um, the auction uh, catalog noted, a novel written before the Civil War. He publishes it in 2002. It becomes a New York Times bestseller. It's, you know, our cultural history and attention wanes, but at the time it was an extraordinarily celebrated and, um, uh, popular uh, uh, novel. It, it was a bestseller, right? And it's because it's an amazing story. Uh, it's, it's a powerfully written novel that um, compels readers to turn the page and discover what happens to the um, narrator who's named Hannah after the author, Hannah Bond. 
Now, okay, I'm, I'm Gates, sorry. I'm going to interrupt you just sure. one more what, real quickly, and that is to ask. Um, so now, what we thought was the oldest novel written by an African American woman uh, is not in the 1850s. Is now that's now backed up. Yes. So Harriet Wilson's um, *Our Nig* was published in 1859. The um, life, the, I'm sorry, the Bond Woman's narrative was written, begun in 1856, and I, I was I, my research in this book um, works off Gates and and the forensic earlier forensic evidence and the evidence I've gathered to date it further. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's written in 1856, completed in 1858. And thus, the first novel written by a okay. black woman. Okay, I, I was um, thinking it was even farther back than that, but but so it backs sure. it up by a year or two. Um, That's right. Yeah. Okay. And in, in the in the in the world of first, that to, you know, how significant is that? Well, you know, it doesn't matter all that much, but it does matter in some respects. It, it's it's a primacy of um, you know, even if. You didn't count it that it's the it's a founding work of African American literature that had been lost, yeah, and been known about until two thousand two. Well, around that time, I got engaged in researching this manuscript. I happened to recently taken a job in Eastern North Carolina, which was um, uh, close to the communities where the much of the book is set and where the author was likely from, right? So I spent the next, you know, at least a decade doing research um, and then follow, follow up research and writing to complete The Life and Times of Hannah Crafts, which is coming out um, in Octo on October 17th. And what that research did was build off Dr. Gates's scholarship, the work of Dorothy Porter Wesley, and the work of scholars who've been excited about this manuscript since its publication in 2002. So it's not, you know, I'm doing it. It's really collaborative work of me and the scholars who have been fascinated by this manuscript and by its, um, its storytelling since its publication in 2002. Yeah. So why it's important is I've, I've uncovered this powerful biography, the life story, the sources, the, um, fellow enslaved women and recounted what their lives were like through deep archival research, oral histories passed down through descendant communities to recreate, to understand the life of this first novelist. Um, and it's, it, it's a story that's built with unlikely um, escapes from, uh, where history could have been lost mm -hmm. all throughout, just like this manuscript resurfaces in 2001, the records, the vague records that preserved the life of this author could have been swept aside in all sorts of ways. There were property records during the Civil War that um, the, uh, the Union ships were coming into Winter, Winton, North Carolina, where the courthouse kept all of the papers, including for the Wheeler family, where we have records of this author um, maintained. Well, they bomb the courthouse. It, uh, it levels it. There's a large fire and it, it, it obliterates all records for that county, except a clerk, knowing that the day before they had seen ships, carried a couple volumes away, right? Exactly. And, and so those are preserved. 
that, that's one example of a series that happened throughout the book of these just amazing uh, escapes from oblivion that yeah. the story of the manuscript itself and the author's life life story somehow may, was maintained, preserved, and reachable if if you did the um, took the time to do the work to discover yeah. the story behind the novel. That's what okay. The book okay, does. You get, you're getting a little story. bit of, you're getting a little bit ahead of me here. Let's let's sure. back up and give me the big picture. Hannah Crafts, um, which was the the name that's the the name of the author that's yes. that's listed on the manuscript. Started right. out life as Hannah Bonds. You've discovered, yes. She was enslaved by the Wheeler family in eastern North Carolina. That's right. And when she escaped to New York um, to live with the Crafts family, that's how she got the name Hannah Crafts. Yes. Or she took manuscript with her. That's right. Okay. So what we know from the forensics of the manuscript that she three-quarters of the way through the manuscript, the author had been describing or had been disguising the name Wheeler. She would write WH-R whenever she was signifying her enslavers. And there was good reason. Um, the Wheelers, uh, in fact, tried to kidnap an earlier woman who was enslaved in that household. And Hannah Crafts knew her. Her name was Jane Johnson. She's very famous and has a chapter in my book, too. But um, once she uh, arrived at Horace Crafts Farm and... And, and I was able to trace the, the um, underground railroad connections that allowed her to escape to upstate New York. Um, once she arrived into safety, she decided to name her enslavers. And when she went back in her manuscript and named the Wheelers and then continued writing the manuscript, she started to make her autobiographical novel um, more closely identified the specific people, Mr. And John, Mr. John Hill Wheeler and Ellen Sully Wheeler, who were the enslavers who she escaped from. They become much more vivid in the second half of the book because mm -hmm. she's now uh, free and she mm -hmm. feels um, emboldened to, to, uh, to have her autobiographical novel be more of a direct um, exploration of her experience. Oh, so interesting. Um, and as you point out, the subtitle of no, I'm sorry, not not the sub the title of her manuscript is a clue uh, hidden in plain sight. The bondsman, the bondswoman's narrative. By uh, Hannah Crafts. So yeah, so her name's there, and it 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 reaches back to. Um, I'm, I'm her, sorry, Greg. Her name was yeah. Hannah Bonds. In, her name was Hannah Bond, and so she would have no doubt right. been called the Bonds woman. When she lived that's in North right. Carolina, yeah, and then that's she, right. She titled her. She wrote it into poems. her into her novel, and so that um, that was one way to begin tracing her history. She was born to uh, the um, Bond family in Indian Woods, North Carolina, and because of the clues that are there in the manuscript, I was able to trace back her family um, and their arrival in the United States. Um, through Thomas, Colonel Thomas Pugh Sr., who was an important early um, shipping leader in North Carolina, and uh, a, a man who um, negotiated 
stealing Native American land in North Carolina, including Indian woods. So he, um, the records demonstrate that he, and first the colonial government and later the state swindled um, the Native American tribes of that area, the Marins uh, uh, tribes um, of, of their land to help build the capital that created a lot of wealth, including the wealth of the Bond family, the wealth of the Pews and the wealth of the Wheelers. So it, it's interesting because it's kind of Hannah Craft's story. She she's referenced this as a little bit, but she probably didn't know as much as we could understand because some of her history was lost to her. Sure. Her mother was um, so taken away from her and moved thousands of miles away to Tennessee when she was 10 years old. Um, her father was never announced, uh, much like Frederick Douglass. Her very light skin seemed to give an identification, and almost certainly it was Louis Bond um, who had enslaved his mother. Uh, her mother uh, was her father, similar to what happened with uh, Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. So this, this history that um, this sort of micro history of the United States is, is really yeah. kind of built into the 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 underpinnings that are behind this novel discovered in 2002 which is just a page turner it's a it's it's a powerful rendition of what the enslaved experience was like but through the imaginative faculties of very gifted artists and much of the book talks about how did she earn and gain the sort of high literacy that she had to make this extraordinarily literary novel that uh, when it was first discovered baffled a lot of people. They didn't think it could have been written by uh, a formerly enslaved woman. And that's where I started. I didn't think it could, I didn't think it was possible to write such a literary uh, piece. And so my skepticism aided me in my research. Um, what do you mean when you say because, that? How did it aid you? Well, when I say that, uh, there was, there, there's a very important um, regional historian, North Carolina historian, Thomas C. Paramore, who is very well respected, he's passed on by now. And he wrote about this, and this is what's so interesting. Um, he, he wrote, there's no way this woman from the Wheeler family um, wrote this novel. And he published that, Gates, when he did a collection with another scholar who's very important, I need to talk about her, Dr. Hollis Robbins. Um, when those two gathered scholars to write about the manuscript, once it was discovered and published in 2002, they invited this very skeptical, well-respected historian of North Carolina, Thomas Paramore. So I, I knew of Thomas Paramore's research. I knew of his eminence in understanding regional history in Eastern North Carolina. And I read his work. I was like, wow, yeah, if Paramore says she didn't write it, I, I, doesn't really, I don't really think she did. But when I dug into Paramore's um, sourcing uh he was wrong and it's possible he knew he was wrong I, you know it's impossible to to assign intent but um when i looked at the sources that he was using to disprove the idea that the, the uh, highly literate enslaved woman came from the wheeler family it was clear that he wasn't paying attention to the stories that 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 were, was appearing in the margins of the official text that were recoverable, and what I discovered is another enslaved uh, person from the same plantation, Moses Bond, was uh, 
uh, manservant to another Wheeler family member. And he was literate. The children wrote to wrote of his literacy and letters that I discovered. In the novel, Hannah Crafts describes being um, taking dictation of letters. Hmm. So what I found is actually in the Wheeler family, enslaved people's value is a very literary family. Um, journalists, uh, um, professors, diplomats, very literate household. They valued the literacy of their enslaved people just because a law was passed doesn't mean no there was no literacy. It's what scholars call a floating literacy that was really about. Uh, it didn't always happen, but you could have pockets of, of, of valuable literacy among enslaved people, and that from one of those pockets mm-hmm. is where Hannah Bond came, um, and she increased that ability when she uh, became a maid servant at the Wheeler House in Murfreesboro, North Carolina, which was immediately adjacent to Chowan Female Baptist Institute, early pioneering um, women's college. And one of the things I did in my research was dig into the account books. And what I discovered was the Wheelers were boarding students at the household where Hannah Bond was serving them. And those students, those college uh, young women had literary societies and they were writing um, poetry. They were publishing their um, works in, um, in, you know, like a college magazine, which I was able to get a hold of. Mm-hmm. And you can, and, and I was also able to dig into the school records of those in, uh, of those women who were right in proximity of Hannah Bond, who was their maidservant, right? Mm-hmm. Serving them. And what you discover is, they're practicing um, compositional exercises that match the style and some of the practices of the novel that really? Hannah Crafts wrote, right? So there's all this powerful way that just that if you take enough time and you enter the full context of this originary manuscript, you start to be able to trace its formation through the genius, but also the learning and literacy of this woman, Hannah, who called herself Hannah Kratz. Yeah. You, um, this book is a biography of Hannah Kratz Bond, but you also describe it as, as a procedural that you spend a lot of time in this book talking about your own process in, um, understanding. I mean, so in other words, things we're talking about here this isn't just the background for the book. It's actually a lot of what the book, your book contains. Yeah. So one of the things um, in, in writing the a biography of Hannah Crafts that I wanted to credit, honor, and build into it was the, um, the artistry of her work. So, mm-hmm. you know, like any biography, um, You know, if we're doing a biography of Mark Twain, people are going to dig into his letters, you Mm -hmm. know, understand what his household, what was his relationships like, you know. And now it's really easy to do that with Twain because you got, you know, generations of scholars who put, you know, looked at every possible thing that's recoverable. It takes a lot longer to do something like that with a figure that was as obscure as Hannah Kratz. But in the book, I wanted to build in um, the 
the sense of discovery that the author herself journeyed towards in mm. developing her skills and her novel. I want the reader to have that experience too. You know, I th- it wasn't just here she was, she was born, she had these difficulties in slavery, and then she wrote a novel. You know, that's not terribly exciting. What's really exciting is the ways in which she discovered and um, fostered her literacy and the way she captured the stories of those enslaved people around her. And as an artist, preserved their lives through her art and fiction in an autobiographical novel. And, you know, so many times when people have gone back and looked at slave narratives, um, the idea is, oh, those enslaved people have to, they they might be lying. So we're going to have this white, we're going to have Wendell Phillips or some other important white authority say, oh, this is a very honest person. And we know Mm -hmm. it's um, transparent, just as they describe it in the book. You know, as a novelist, Crafts, Crafts was telling her story and the stories of enslaved people, but she wasn't under those strictures. I mean, she was she was writing as any writer at any time would write for the pleasure mm-hmm. of creation, creation that told a deep story, but it didn't have to be, you know, the strictures of, of what uh, an abolitionist produced slave narrative, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it, it adds a type of level to the, the artistic complexity of she just has that freedom because she wasn't boxed in by by trying to produce a specific document for an abolitionist society. Now that doesn't mean she didn't learn from the transcendent uh, narrative devices of people like Frederick Douglass, William Wells Brown, those things help inform what she does with the novel, but she's her own artist, right? She does some really genius things. Yeah. Okay. Since you brought up abolitionist narratives, which were pretty important in, in shaping the way people thought about, you know, slavery in the run up to the, to the American civil war. Um, talk to me about, I mean, just, just to play this out. Um, when you said she has some freedom from strictures that, that, that maybe other writers didn't, um, or that didn't have the same rhetorical purpose as a lot of abolitionist narratives. Let's talk about the relationship between the bondswoman's narrative um, and um, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Right? You you write about this oh, sure. in your book, yeah. So I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about that, which of course was written yeah, by sure. a white woman with a very right. specific rhetorical purpose. Yeah, well, I think it's fascinating because Uncle Tom's Cabin was a cultural sensation in a way that we've rarely ever had, right? I mean, we get waves of this with the latest Netflix sensation, right? Serial sensation that is a part of our everyday conversation. But at the time when Harriet Beecher Stowe um, published Uncle Tom's Cabin, she was engaging the question of slavery in a way that... um, uh, writers were not encouraged to because they thought they would lose the Southern market. And she wrote about it from what she understood of slavery with a really abolitionist purpose. Now, when we read this, or if you teach it, it's a completely racist text. I mean, it's why we have the term uncle Tom. There's a lot of really problematic um, issues with the way in which Stowe um, magnified and, continued the type of racial stereotyping she thought she was working against. But it's still a stunning, sentimental 
wonderfully plotted narrative. Right. Now, what I discovered in um, studying Hannah Crafts and Hannah Bond's life, uh, uh, the Harriet Beecher Stowe's family on her mother's side actually were shippers. And one of her, uh, I think it's her maternal grandfather was buried um, right in, right across the street from, originally buried right across the street from where Hannah Bond served the Wheelers. There's a way in which the, um, and we don't have this, the scholarship's finally catching up with this, but Harriet Beecher Stowe had slaves in the family. And in fact, um, she lived for a short time and her son recorded records of her mentioning two enslaved children in the household of her aunt. Um, what I think is fascinating, you know, Crafts didn't know all this, but Crafts ran into Uncle Tom's cabin in all sorts of ways as anybody living in the 1850s would have, right? Um, Uncle Tom's cabin, 1852, 1853, I think is popular everywhere, even in the South. And what she experienced was uh, the significant artistry that she would have engaged from the students who were reading Uncle Tom's Cabin, but also the um, exaggerated uh, racism of the book. Mm -hmm. So what I discovered is Hannah Crapp's owner, John Hill Wheeler and Mrs. Wheeler loved minstrels, right? Mm -hmm. This is where white people blacken their face and they sing songs and, um, and it's what it usually is is this racist depiction of dark-skinned people, which is now a white person with blacked-up face, strumming on a guitar, saying how much they miss, how much better life was in slavery. Well, mm -hmm. Uncle Tom's Cabin was a very featured um, story for that particular type of art, that sort of minstrelsy. We have record of John Hill Wheeler going to these shows with his wife. It's very likely that Hannah Bond could have accompanied that and seen those depictions mm -hmm. of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So in, in a way, Crafts seems to have been very familiar with Uncle Tom's Cabin from probably these types of engagements, but also potentially the actual work itself, mm -hmm. which was circulated among the college women that she attended to. And she saw the power of that, but she wrote it very differently. She, she, in other words, she saw what could be the power of the novel as a vehicle, and it was very powerful. You know, Lincoln is this the little lady who launched the war, or whatever, yeah, right? Because right. Uncle Tom Cabin was so important. Um, she saw the effectiveness of the novel as a vehicle for telling um, the story of enslavement. It's just when she came to write it. She didn't write it in the racist way that she saw depicted on the stage by these white people blacking up their face. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things I did was able to discover the specific, um, this is hard to find, but the specific uh, minstrelsy passage that she likely saw. And what's so fascinating in the novel, it's the greatest moment, the greatest scene in the book is she has Mrs. Wheeler mistakenly blacken her face and beg for appointment for her husband in Washington, D.C. And what she's doing there is she's seen those minstrelsies and she's like, forget that. I'm blacking up these white people and taking them down. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, I mean, it's comic. It's hilarious. It's 
it's it's a genius rewriting of white minstrelsy yeah now from this gifted artist's perspective and this is what i'm saying like we have this um, brilliant writer who's not um she's she's not she's not on a, a abolitionist circuit trying to follow a certain um formula that is being forged for what she can write she is a gifted writer taking everything that she can and using her literacy and pleasure uh, like any writer should be able to do like you do in your books jonathan like i do when i'm writing the biography and she's she's um she's creating art you yeah. know great art yeah okay. and, and what's so amazing is that great art found its way back to us right and it's yeah, a bestseller right. in 2002. oh good you you just gave me a nice little uh entree to what i wanted to, to talk about next um and that is, you know, Henry Louis Gates describes you as a doggedly determined and extremely gifted literary scholar, which, of course, I could see when we were playing darts and you were wearing your leather pants. You know, <laughs> Bowling Avenue. But uh, also, but, you know, this this idea of you being um, doggedly determined, you've been doing this for 20 years. You've been working on this project for 20 years, if I'm not mistaken. Right. 20 yeah, it, it would be from start to finish, you know. Yeah, probably twenty years. I did other. I was I was talking with another biographer the other night who who spent years and years writing um, her biographies, and you know her friends were like, "How could it take so long?" <laughs> she's she's like me. I'm like, you know, I did other things. I raised a family. I chaired two departments. I published <laughs> five other books. Right. So right. it wasn't. Um, yeah, yeah. Both of us have always been very sensitive about yeah. this idea. But it, I'm um, not. I'm not saying anything, Greg, about <laughs> about your. Uh, but, Do I seem defensive? <laughs> but you got. But you got started in this project. I mean, your. Your area of expertise was not African-American literature, right? I mean, when we lived together, you were writing about riddles and a lot of Dickens and that kind of stuff. But you just happened to live in the right place when I mean, there were some help, – help me get this right. There were some scholars who came down and just needed – needed kind of a local yeah. guide, so to speak. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. That's giving me a good opportunity because very important to my engaging in this project was my very dear friend – Hollis Robbins. Hollis Robbins was a graduate student of Henry Louis Gates Jr. when he discovered the manuscript. Um, she was trained as a Victorian scholar, as I okay. was. And when she was a graduate student and Dr. Gates was circulating the manuscript before it was published, right around the time it was published, she was like, whoa, ho, hold on. This author is um, borrowing and reflecting significantly on Charles Dickens' novel, Bleak House. Yeah. And because of the way the Academy works, a lot of American literature scholars read so deeply in American literature, they don't know this other yeah. area and so forth. So Robbins discovered this. She pulled me in because she reached out at the time I was at East Carolina University. And not everybody wants to travel to rural North Carolina to dig into um, rural archives, but if you're going to find this kind of material, you're not going to generally find it in, you know, Harvard's library. You're going to find it in East Carolina University Library, or you're going to find it, as I found a lot of my stuff, by going to the communities and talking to high school teachers who have the collective memory of their communities and really? who hold the papers of their communities. But anyway, Hollis brought me in, and um, 
we became very dear friends and we talked uh, during this 20 years. I mean, I just had drinks with her when I was passing through Utah earlier this summer. Just amazing, amazing scholar, amazing woman, great writer and also academic. She's dean at the University of Utah. Anyway, this long friendship. Sometime early on when I was doing this work, she said, you know, you have so much great stuff. And and Dr. Gates was also supportive. They're like, instead of, you know, doing this research for my interest in the book, why don't you take it? Like, mm. do what you're doing and just keep going. And that was Dr. Gates and Dr. Robbins' um, invitation to me to, to really just take my time and pursue the research behind this. And um, I, I think some of it's disciplinary. If I was at a research one institution yeah. and I published my first book, as I did on riddles in 19th century British literature, I would have felt compelled to corner the market on riddles puns. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, not that that wasn't really fascinating to write a dissertation, a book about, but that would have become my I scholarly identity because I had yeah. to produce right every single yeah. year to be at those really uh, research one, just the way that you're professionally trained. Because a lot of my career has been at less um, very teaching oriented schools, which I love to do. I love teaching. There wasn't a, a pressure to specialize or to hmm. um, narrow my focus. And so I did do, I published things that I wanted to publish. And I just took my time with this other project, which has just been the most rewarding yeah. of all the writing and research that I've done so far. Yeah. I love this movement from you, know, you being a scholar of riddles to then tackling this real world riddle that um, that now, you know, is essentially your book is a detective story. Um, yeah, yeah. 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 I tried to write it that way. But really, what, what's really uh, consistent all along is just a passion for archival work. I, I probably told you this story, but um, in Chapel Hill, when I was an undergraduate, everybody would go to the football game and it was a ton of fun. There'd be parties before everybody had dates and I'd travel along with all my friends going to the game and nobody would notice. And I would peel off. I'd go straight to the library because that is as fun as a football game is. And I love football. <laughs> but as fun as that is, I loved having the archive to myself. Right. Yeah. And yeah. just nerd. Right. Yeah. So even that puzzle book and what I wrote when we were living together, I discovered one afternoon when I was skipping a football game and I was digging into early versions of Charles Dickens' novel, Our Mutual Friend. I discovered a slip of paper that he had included in the first, no, in the, on the first page of that novel that had been out of print. And that mm -hmm. opened up the world of puzzles and riddles, which were part of my first book. So the sort of just um, passion for digging into the archive and living in in the source documents, not, you know, the second, when we were in graduate school, it was all literary theory, right? And yeah. secondary documents, you know, you didn't read anything, right? Like, you didn't, <laughs> lucky if you read the primary text, you were reading the, you know, the, and there, it was all brilliant work, but it, in that time and place, it was very um, secondary sourced research. Well, my, my jam has always been, the archive. And so th that that's a consistent thing. So, you know, the fact that I spent so much time, it's always just been a pleasure, even on days when I don't really advance the project, but I'm just living in the past, like you would live in a novel, right? As you're, yeah. as you're working through that archival material, it, it all adds up.
to finally being able to craft a type of history, right? Yeah. All right, Greg, we got to wrap this thing up. Um, sure thing. A question I usually ask at the end of these conversations that I didn't warn you about, so you know, do the best you can. Uh, who are the writers who make you want to write? Not the same question as who are your favorite writers, right? It's who's the ones who make you, you read it and you go, I'm going to go do, so, I'm going to go write something now. Yeah. Well, recently it's really biography. Mm-hmm. Even when we were in graduate school, I, I remember reading Richard Holmes' biography of Shelley, mm-hmm. you know, and I'd tackle the poetry and it would be so, you know, I'm, I'm all about a close reading of a good Caesura, but <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I, I could do that for a while and that's pleasurable. But I found so much more interesting when I would dig into biography, right? So Richard Holmes early on and um, Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns is just probably the greatest book in my um, experience. Bonnie Perry's work. And I I can really name like it's a really African-American women writers right now that have opened up, and I didn't get into this, um, and really when I present this work and other contexts, I acknowledge the descendant families, the descendant communities who shared their stories with me, mm-hmm. You know, t- took the time to have me into their homes, sit in their basements with their, with their um, families, right? And, yeah. and share their stories, like that's number one. Number yeah. two was the these trailblazing, African-American women scholars who, Sadidia Hartman, who's like the great theorist of the archive, um, Brenda E. Stevenson, who I got to work with, uh, Amani Perry, Blair L.M. Kelly, I could go on, you know, name a bunch of names that your readers won't know, but people in the academy know that this is where the great scholarship is happening. And I listened, studied, and learned very closely from them so that I could go out there. It wasn't like I bumbled out there and just knew what to do, right? I had to see how African-American trailblazing scholars have been doing this work, right? Be inspired by an amazing work like the warmth of other sons, you know, and that's where it gets into the craft. I mean, you are such a talented writer, Jonathan. I I want to say this, your your, uh, Wilder King series is the most beloved, imaginative work in my family. That's with my children, my wife, with me too. So um, you're you're somebody who cares about craft and and I do too. And I look towards your work, you know, I I can't do it because it's not, I can't do that imagined work because I'm a biographer. And then I'll look over towards uh, somebody like Isabel Wilkerson, who's just completely inspiring and I'll teach it, right? Like the fun of teaching is, well, let's look how she crafts this. Let's dig into the notes. She's doing oral history. How is she gonna set a scene? And I like to teach writing biography because, and this is your reader, your listeners who are interested in craft, it's very different than an academic book. An academic book is an argument. You name all the scholars, you enter the debate, and you have a, a, an argument. Um, to write narrative, you don't do that. I mean, some of that's in this book, because believe me, it's, it's a scholarly book. But it's also limiting perspective building a narrative so that the readers hovering in what Jane Austen taught us limited third person perspective, right? Where you can go from one consciousness to another there to write biography is also a narrative craft. And that's always fascinated me because I've always had one foot in, um, and, and in the world of creative writing and, and a fascination with how you do that. Yeah. All right, Greg, 
Thank you, Greg Hagmovich. Thank you for being here. And um, I'm sure we'll talk soon. Yeah, let's do it, Jonathan. Uh, I can't wait to come. See, I have to come see you in Nashville. And please, if you're ever in Chapel Hill, Greenville. Well, I know you'll be in Greenville. I'll be back in Greenville. We'll have to yeah, get right. together. We so can set a Vanderbilt game together. Hey, let's go hit the archive, my friend. <laughs>